Today is, as you already know, the first Sunday of Advent. What you may not know is at the, the word Advent is really a church-created term. Uh, the, the early church decided to create a season where people could connect together and, um, and understand what Jesus has been about on the earth. Um, for many Christians, the word Advent is really still unfamiliar. If, if you're not a person who was raised in the church, you may, you may not even know what it means. So I'm going to give you a little history of Advent. Um, the word Advent is derived from uh, the, meaning, uh, the Latin word which means coming. Scholars believe that during the 4th and 5th centuries of Spain and Gaul, Advent was a season of preparation for the baptism of new Christians, which occurred once a year in January during the Feast of Epiphany. And Epiphany is another Christian calendar thing that celebrates when the wise men came. And the wise men actually came a couple years after the birth of Jesus. So they were celebrating Epiphany. They were celebrating the baptism of Jesus. And they were, they were celebrating the first miracle at Canaan. So the very first group of Christian people uh, celebrated Advent as a preparation time, 40 days of preparation for this one yearly baptism that of the people who anybody who wanted to come came that one time a year and they uh, were celebrating the feast, uh, the miracle at Canaan, Jesus' baptism, and the coming of the, all these firsts. That's what they were celebrating. By the 6th century, the Roman Christians tied Advent to the second coming of Christ. It was not until the Middle Ages that Advent season was explicitly linked to the Christ's first coming at Christmas. Today, we celebrate Advent in the manner uh, that Jesus coming in the birth of uh, his birth in the stable in Bethlehem. Advent, there are four weeks of preparation. You've already heard today is about hope. Then we have joy and love and peace that comes from, all of it comes from a relationship with, with Jesus. Uh, even though Advent is a church-created celebration, we understand the meaning of it. So today, I call today's message, It's All About Hope, Coming to His Presence with Hope. So what does hope mean? What does hope really mean? You can see up here on, the, on this little thing here, I have our experience with God, and then we get patient endurance, and then we get character, and then we get hope, right? A lot of people see it that way. Um, there is a new modern, and if you're not on the computer much, you may not see it. So like if you type in a word on the computer, it can, it'll give you a, a meaning, right? How many of you heard of Wikipedia? Right, most of us, are, there's a new one out uh, called Quora, and it grabbed my attention because it takes, it takes the meaning of words and it 
allows internet users factually or with their own opinion to go in and change the meaning of the word based upon their own opinion. It's a company based in California. Huh, interesting. And it was founded in June uh, of 2009. It was made available to the public in 2010. So what's interesting is if we allow the culture to tell us what hope is, here's, here's the most popular definition, okay? It's interesting how they, they define hope by giving it a contrast. It's interesting. So it says, with expectation, you feel entitled for something to happen. With hope, you want something to happen, and when it does, you're actually really happy. That's the current <laughs> cultural definition of hope, right? And I'm thinking, you know what? If I look out in the world, and I, if, I, uh, if I see it from the world perspective, I can understand why people would come up with that. If we look a little bit further back, uh, Daniel Webster, some of you grew up with Daniel Webster's dictionary. Uh, his first dictionary was published in 1828. And this is what he said. So let's go back in history. Uh, what is that, like 180-ish? No, 190-ish years, right? And so, uh, is that right, or did I get that wrong like I got the aisles wrong? Okay. <laughs> All right. So, uh, he says this. It's a desire of some good accompanied with at least a slight expectation of obtaining it or a belief that it's obtainable. Hope differs from a wish and desire in this. It implies some, it implies some, hmm, I lost page four. <laughs> it implies, oh, there it is. Uh, it implies some expectation of obtaining the good desired or the possibility of possessing it. Hope, therefore, always gives pleasure or joy, whereas a wish or a desire may produce or be accompanied with pain and anxiety. So again, he uses a contrasting point of view as he defines it. The second definition of that 1828 Webster says this, confidence in a future event, the highest degree of well-founded expectation of good as a hope found on God's gracious promises, a scriptural sense. Isn't that interesting? That was actually in a public dictionary. A well-founded scriptural hope is in our religion, the source of ineffable happiness. So that's how he defined it. I'm not, I don't know about you, but I think it's probably important to see how God defines it, right? Let's see what he says. Uh, Luke 2 starts this way. During those days, the Roman emperor Caesar Augustus ordered that the first census be taken through his empire. Quirinius was the governor of Syria at the time. Everyone had to travel to his or her own hometown to complete the mandatory census. So Joseph and his fiancée, Mary, left Nazareth, a village in Galilee, and journeyed to their hometown in Judea to the village of Bethlehem, King David's ancient home. They were required to register there since they were both direct descendants of David Mary 
was pregnant and nearly ready to give birth. When they arrived in Bethlehem, Mary went into labor and she gave birth to her firstborn son. After wrapping the newborn baby in strips of cloth, they laid him in a feeding trough since there was no available space in the upper room in the village. So you're like, I didn't even hear the word hope there. Right? I didn't even hear the word hope there. The second place we're going to talk about hope is in Matthew 2. And it says this, Jesus was born in Bethlehem near Jerusalem during the reign of King Herod. And after Jesus' birth, a group of spiritual priests from the east came to Jerusalem and inquired of the people, where is this child who was born king of the Jewish people? We observed his star rising in the sky, and we've come to bow before him in worship. He will be born in Bethlehem in the land of Judah, they told him, because the prophecy states that you, O Bethlehem, are not insignificant amongst the clans of Judah, for out of you will emerge a shepherd king of my people Israel. Did you hear the word hope there? Didn't hear the word hope. Didn't hear the word hope. But let's think about these two passages. Hope, a whole nation on the lookout for Jesus. We had a whole nation on the lookout for Jesus for hundreds of years they were on the lookout for Jesus because they knew that he was the answer to the forgiveness of their sins. So this entire nation for hundreds of years had a hope that Jesus would show up. But their hope isn't the hope that we learned about in the dictionaries. Their hope was an expectation that in God's timing, he would fulfill his promise. That was their hope. Their second expectation was that out of them, out of their nation, would emerge the Savior. So they had two hopes. One, that Jesus would come. Two, that he would come from them. They had two hopes. For hundreds of years, Jesus was prophesied. The Old Testament, written before Jesus was ever born, was completed about 450 years before Jesus was born. So we have this time in between when the prophets were writing about the coming of Jesus and the history of the God and mankind. We have a whole 450 years. So the very, very last pro prophetic utterance of Jesus was at least a minimum of 450 years old. Hope is the expectation that God in his time would fulfill his promise of a redeemer. It remained constant. Okay, if we take 450 years and we divide it by a generation, which the Bible defines as 40 years, that means that there were 12 generations from the last prophetic utterance of Jesus 12 generations between that and when he actually came. Okay, how many of you can, can trace your family tree 12 generations back? How many of you even know the names of those people? 
That's how long. Oh, one person. That's how long. Two people. All right. It's not common, right? Twelve generations is a long time. It's a long time. And Israel, the nation of Israel, was waiting in expectation, expectation, expectation that Jesus would come. We know that there are more than 300 prophecies about King Jesus coming to the earth. Three, more than 300 prophecies. Mathematically speaking, the odds of anyone fulfilling this amount of prophecy, 300 separate prophecies is staggering. Mathematicians put it this way. Okay, one person fulfilling Eight prophecies is one in 100,000 quadrillion. I didn't even know how to say that number. I had to look it up, right? I didn't know after trillion. I had to ask. Some young people, they knew it was quadrillion. Eight prophecies, one in 100,000 quadrillion, all right? Well, let's bump it up to 48 prophecies, 48 prophecies, the chance is one and in 10 to the 157th power. That means that we would have a one followed by 157 zeros. Like, I couldn't fit them all on the page. I started, I'm going to type 157 zeros. It's like it wouldn't all fit on the screen, right? It'd be really small and it wouldn't fit on the screen. One person fulfilling 300 plus prophecies by chance mathematically is impossible. Mathematically, it's impossible. So we have a God who purposely understood our brain and understood our intelligence and understood our logic and he took that logic and said, I'm going to set up a situation where it is impossible for it to happen any other way than me. It's impossible for it to happen any other way than me. And will you trust me enough to expect it to happen? Do you trust me enough to expect it to happen? In Romans 15, it says, And Isaiah prophesied, an heir to David's throne will emerge, and he will rise up as ruler over all the non-Jewish nations, for all their hopes will be met in him. God declared that all of their hopes would be met in him. Now may God, the inspiration and fountain of hope, fill you to overflowing with uncontainable joy and perfect peace as you trust him. Perfect peace and uncontainable joy comes as I trust him. Do I trust to the level of expectation of him? And may the power of the Holy Spirit continually surround your life with his super abundance until you radiate with hope. Look in the mirror when you get home today and say, do I radiate with hope? Because that's what he declares for his people. He declares that we, that's who we are. That's our, that's our middle name, 
our first name and our last name. Isaiah says this, again, Lord Yahweh spoke to Ahaz. Now, Ahaz, in case you don't know anything about biblical history, Ahaz was this really bad king. He was this bad, bad guy. Uh, he, he was definitely considered to be an evil king. So the Lord Yahweh spoke to Ahaz through the pro prophet Isaiah. And he said, go ahead, ask for a sign from Yahweh your God. Ask for something big, so miraculous that you will know that only God did it. This was Ahaz's response. Ahaz answered, I will not ask. I won't attempt to test the Lord Yahweh. So even though the guy was this despicable, evil guy who went this way when God was asking him to go this way, he knew enough about God to say, I won't attempt to test the Lord. Isn't that interesting? He had a, a fear of God. So Isaiah said, and he was, being, he was pretty frustrated with Ahaz at this point because he was knocking on his head and couldn't break through to him. And he said, pay attention to the family of David. It's bad enough to test my patience as a prophet. In other words, he was saying, King Ahaz, you're getting on my nerves, dude. Right? That's what he's saying. But even worse, when you try the patience of God as well. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will name him God among us or Emmanuel. We sang about that this morning. Psalm 30, a couple of these scriptures we've heard already. This is why I wait upon expecting your breakthrough for your word brings me hope. The Lord will be the hope of his people, says Joel 3 through 16. So here's the deal, people. God claims to be our hope. Therefore, our expectation of him is a relational issue between him and us. So you guys know Glenn, if you have been coming to the service. And I've been talking to Glenn for months and months and months and months. And as I'm have been talking to him, he said to me, I feel like God's knocking on my soul, Holy Spirit's knocking on me to create something in wood that would indicate the triune nature of God, that would indicate how big he is, how encompassing he is. How can I do that in wood? I don't know how many conversations I had with Glenn about that. And uh, finally, uh, he woke up in the middle of the night, been asking God for months, Give me something, give me something so that I can, I can take what you're telling me to do and actually do it, right? Using wood, which is his mechanism of ministry. And so this is what he came up with. This heart represents the heart of the Father, right? The love of the Father. The cross represents Jesus, I don't know if you've been, if have you've taken crosses from the back and handed them out to friends and stuff, if you've noticed that there's a little bevel around the cross. And when I talked with Glenn the other day, he said, you know what? I've always wondered why I do that. I just have, I do it kind of out of obedience. I've, I've, I thought, well, maybe it was this or maybe it was that. He said, I finally realized that I know why, what that beveled edge means around that cross. 
It, it represents the time at Jesus' baptism when the Holy Spirit came down on him and filled him. And that's why there's a beveled edge around the heart. That's where Holy Spirit is. So I asked the question, I asked the question of hope. And Glenn, Glenn calls me today out of the blue, like I haven't seen him in weeks and weeks and weeks. He calls me out of the blue and he said, hey, I finally got that thing made and I just think you're supposed to use it today. You're supposed to use it this Sunday. How perfect. Holy Spirit whispers to him and I'm like, wow, you just gave me the best example of all because what, what that exemplifies is a relational thing that is reflected in something tangible that can be shared with somebody else, right? It's a relational experience that Glenn has with God and it's, he just wrestled with it for months and months. It didn't come easy. And that's what God does with us. That's just one example of how God wrestles with us to convince us that he is the one who makes the declarations. He's the one who does all that. So how do we walk in his hope? There's one example. How do we apply, how do we apply that hope in our lives as we're walking with God? So Romans 5 verse 3 says this. Even in times of trouble, we have a joyful confidence knowing that our pressures will develop in us patient endurance. And patient endurance will refine our character. And proven character leads us back to hope or expectation. This hope is not a disappointing fantasy because we can now experience the endless love of God cascading into our hearts through Holy Spirit who lives in us. So this little, this is the way the world sees hope right here. The world sees hope that our experiences with God, if we have enough good ones, okay, then we'll become patient and enduring. And if we're patient and enduring enough, we'll build our character. And when we build our character, hope is on the top of that. But if we understand the scripture that we just read, it's really not this at all. I was fooling you. This is the truth of Scripture. The truth of Scripture is that hope, expectation of God, is our very foundation. It's the foundation that builds our character. Why does hope, expectation of God, build my character? Because I'm walking through my life expecting that he's going to do what he said he's going to do. It doesn't matter what I see. It doesn't matter what I feel. I know he's going to do it. And I walk. That's what develops character. Ask any person who understands character. That's what develops character. Character is developed out of the expectation that I have that God is going to be God and he's going to do what he said he's going to do. Once I have character, I have what it takes to be enduring. I have what it takes to be patient. I have what it takes once I have the character that he instills in me. And then from that, 
I experience, my experience with God is way different than if I start. The world wants us to start with our experience, don't they? That's what our nature tells us. Our nature tells us to start with our experience and build up from there. But the Bible, God just flips that upside down and says it's the opposite of that. You know, I, uh, last Saturday, I got the honor and the pleasure to officiate at my son's wedding. All right? It was this, what a blessed thing it was for me. And uh, as I was creating this message, I was reminded in the way that they looked at each other, right? They looked in each other's eyes. Tears are coming down their faces. They're giving these amazing, spectacular vows. They both love Jesus. They both have Jesus as a foundation in their life. And you see that, that connection that they have with each other. I thought, what a, what, there's no better picture. There's not a better picture than that. Even though older, older people, you know, you can glance. I, could, I finally saw it all from the front, right? So I'm glancing up, and I'm, I'm looking at old people do this, right? Old married people do this. And so, you know, the old experienced married people are going, this is so cute. You know, this is so cute, isn't it? Um, if they only knew what they were really in for, right? Isn't that what us old people were thinking? <laughs> the deal is we take our experience and we apply it to God, which is our biggest mistake. Because our experience in human relationships comes out of the fact that none of us are perfect. None of us are, are able to fulfill that vow completely, are we? So we can't take our experience with our spouse, or our experience with our brother, or our experience with our bestest friend on the whole world, and, and compare it to our experience with God. Because as human beings, we stumble in many ways, don't we? And no matter how hard we try, we keep stumbling in many ways. But God, He doesn't stumble. He does not lie. And He has His own timing. Since the history of the earth, God has never broken a promise. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, will I commit today for the first time or will I commit again to understanding that God does not lie. He cannot lie. He always fulfills his promises. This is challenging because our experience with people is full of times when people let us down. Full of times when they broke their promise even when they didn't intend to. It's, it's impossible for us to understand the nature of hope and the nature of expectation with God if we let our experience with people direct us. It's impossible. So I went to uh, thebible.com, and I thought, wouldn't it be cool if, uh, how many promises has God made? Thebible.com, I went with them, because there's a bunch of people like, 
You can Google it. And they'll all say different numbers, but I went with them because they're the Bible.com. Anyway, they said that God has made 7,487 promises to mankind. 7,487 promises to mankind. If you don't know what those promises are, because you don't, you, you're not a Bible scholar, you don't know what they are, Google can be your friend. <laughs> Google promises of God, right? Just, just Google it. What are the promises of God? Wouldn't it be amazing if in this Advent season, we decided that we would expect that God does not lie, that God always fulfills his promise, and he fulfills that pro those promises as he decides in his timing, right? I give him the liberty to do it at his discretion. What if I Googled three or four promises and I wrote them on my mirror or I wrote them on uh, the, the front part of my cell phone or I wrote them on something that I would see regularly for me and rehearsed the promises that he's made me. Because you know why you chose those three? Because they're struggle for you. They're a struggle for you. That's why you chose those three or four, right? So how about taking three or four promises and, and rehearsing them and rehearsing them and saying, I pray this prayer a lot. It says, God, you said blank. And I'm holding you to it. That's, an, that's a better expectation than you said this, God, but I don't see how it's true. My experience doesn't tell me that it might work that way. It might be true for my neighbor, but it's not true for me. Wouldn't it be better to just, you know, God is the one who said, come stand before me and reason with me, kiddo. Come stand before me and reason with me. God, you said this, and I'm holding you to it. You know what? When I've done that in my life, you know what has happened to me? I change my view. Instead of going through my life, watching how the promises of God don't come true, I go through my life watching the cracks in the openings of the promises of God, and I start paying attention to how he's answering his promise. See, him answering his promise, him fulfilling his promise, doesn't depend on me at all. But I have a choice to pay attention to what he's, he's doing or to pay attention to my little view with my blinders on as I walk through my life. In weddings, there is a repeat after me vow, right? I blank, take thee blank to be my husband to hold Da, 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 you know that repeat after me stuff? So I'm going to ask you, let's today, with the expectation that God cannot lie, let's enter verbally into a covenant with him. So I'm going to ask you to stand. And repeat after me. I, in your name, I, 
Commit today, Commit today. To, trust you, to trust you, God, with my life. No matter what I see, no matter how I feel, no how I, feel. I trust you to be my Savior, my Father, my Creator, and my King. To have and to hold from this day forward. In the better and through the worse. For richer, for poorer, in all circumstances in my life. To love and to cherish until death brings us face to face. According to God's holy ordinance, I pledge myself to you. Is that an amen? Amen, amen, amen. Right? We're going to continue our celebration this morning with our offering. You may be seated.